0: Hello and welcome back to the God's Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm joined once again this time by Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States for another look at the Book of Revelation. Alistair, welcome back to the show. Good to be back. And this time we're looking at Chapter 13 now. Uh, How on earth does Chapter 13 continue on
1: from Chapter 12, Alistair? In Chapter 12, we had the vision of the woman in the heaven and her giving birth to a child and the um challenge of the dragon and that is very important to keep in mind at the beginning of chapter 13 because this continues that particular vision we've had the dragon and now there will be a sea beast and a land beast that correspond to the dragon each one of them in their own ways are miniature versions of the dragon or we could argue that they are like nesting dolls so the Top nesting doll is the dragon, then within him you have this sea beast, and then within that you have the land beast. In what ways, I wonder, are the dragon and the beasts a parody of the Trinity? Peter Lighthart has suggested that we could see them that way, and I think as we go through there will be a number of points where that is a very promising and helpful reading, and we can see the way that there is this movement from the... Um, dragon to the sea beast as the one who is as it were the sea beast is the one who declares the dragon who reveals the dragon and then we have the land beast who's the prophet the one who is um the one who makes known the sea beast and and we can see this is almost the trinitarian movement from father made known by the son and then the spirit is the one who makes known all things of Christ to his people. And so there's a sort of false church established by the land beast that corresponds with maybe the church formed by the spirit. Then we have the sea beast and the worship formed around the sea beast corresponding to the worship formed around Christ. And the sea beast is the one who declares the monster of the dragon as a akin to the way that Christ reveals the glory of the Father. So maybe there is a sort of parodic trinity going on.
0: Mm. I want to ask this question. Uh, To what extent is this chapter framed by biblical theology of the cherubim and of animals?
1: Well, it's helpful to go back to the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel has a vision that is very much in the background here, with four beasts arising out of the sea. And those beasts are connected with the living creatures that are guardians of the throne of the Lord, the ones that we encounter at the beginning of the book of Ezekiel and elsewhere. So we've got these cherubic guardians, and these are connected on earth with these great imperial powers. And so it seems that this is a uh, continuation and elaboration of that vision that we have in Daniel. And that is the background. Is the sea beast here Daniel's fourth beast? I think so. And what we can see is the fourth beast is a sort of amalgam of the preceding three. So if you read the description of it, it's like a leopard, its feet like a bear's, its mouth like a lion's mouth. And as we see that description, and along with the fact 10 horns and seven heads, 10 diadems on its horns, etc. We might think back to the features that are described of the various beasts in Daniel. So the first is like a lion with eagle's wings. So we've got the lion's mouth and then we have the next one, which is like a bear with um, this up on one side. We've got the feet like a bear here. We've got next the leopard figure in the third beast the leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and here we've got the the one who's like a leopard and then finally we have the fact that the fourth beast brings together all these different heads um think of the seven heads there are um the first one has one head then there's another one with one head then there are There's a four-headed beast, and then there's a one-headed beast. So seven heads, this sort of amalgam. And in this figure, then, I think we're seeing this amalgam of all these earthly powers that have preceded it. It's this monstrous hybrid, and that, I think, um, needs to be understood against the backdrop of Daniel, and then it makes a lot more sense. Is this beast
0: a – it comes from the sea, doesn't it? So it's a sea beast. So is this a Gentile beast? A gentile power.
1: Yes, I think that's the way to understand this. So in biblical symbolism, we have the sea land opposition as being a Gentile Israel opposition. The sea rises up and threatens to overwhelm the land. Um that's the threat of the Gentiles rising up to overwhelm the land of Israel. Or we might think about the great depictions of sea monsters, the great monster in the Nile. That's Egypt, or we might think about the great sea monster in the book of Jonah that seems to represent Assyria, and we have a great monster that swallows the nation of um, Israel, a monster from the deep, being Babylon at the very end of the book of Jeremiah. And so in all of these images, we're having monsters and figures from the deep or the sea that represent Gentile powers, and that, I think, is also very clearly the case in Daniel, where the beasts arise from the sea, they correspond with the animals, the the beasts of the later visions in chapters 8 to 12. And those beasts are beasts that are Gentile powers, empires, and they're empires that threaten the land, but also can sometimes act as guardians of the land.
0: Now, uh, this beast has ten horns, seven heads, and ten diadems. Now, is this beast to be associated with Rome? Just thinking of the ten horns of the the ten emperors up to eighty seventy, I think if you include Julius Caesar, who wasn't technically an emperor, but could this be could this beast be associated with the power of the Roman Empire, for example?
1: Yeah, so I, that would be my read. Um, the beast is associated with the Roman Empire. The beast is also a mini me for the great dragon. So if you read the description of the dragon and then read the description of the sea beast, you can see a great many similarities. The dragon has seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. Here we have a sea beast with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its heads, on its horns, and then blasphemous names on its heads. You might think about the way that the high priest of israel has the name of the lord upon his head Um, this again maybe suggests that there is a sort of he's a priestly figure almost representing the dragon or the um, satanic monster as uh, an earthly priest or representative
0: so this is presumably rome turned satanic or rome gone bad yes which it did of course now how does the beast mimic jesus i wonder Does the beast mimic Jesus?
1: I think there are a number of similarities. Um, I think there is a sort of false religion that's formed around the beast. As we go on, we'll see that more clearly. We might also think about the way that the beast has a sort of death and resurrection um, type reality, a mortal wound that's healed. And so there's a rising again. And so there's a sort of parodic resurrection taking place the worship that's formed around it again a worship around christ might think about the fact that the sea beast is described as in language that is almost parodic of michael who is like god who is like the beast is the question that's raised Um, And then the fact that the number of the beast is 666, the number of Christ reckoned in a similar manner is 888. So it seems that there is some sort of juxtaposition of the beast with Christ. He's the false antichrist figure.
0: Now, um, who or what is the land
1: that marvels after the beast? If we're seeing this in terms of the sea-land opposition, then it would seem to be the land of Israel and the people or the people that are represented by that land. Um, And the land beast that corresponds to the sea beast would then also be understood in that sort of light as a land power that corresponds to and supports and establishes the rule of the sea beast in the realm of Israel. Now,
0: how does the beast unite the people of the land and the
1: Gentiles? We'll later have the a woman riding upon the beast in chapter 17. So there seems to be a close alliance and dependence of the land powers upon the this great monster of the beast and the monster of the sea. We can see the unity formed in the act of persecution. Both of them are committed to attacking the woman and her seed, the faithful, um, either corrupting or attacking and That, again, draws our attention back to the plot that's been introduced at the end of chapter 12 in the preceding chapter. And so there is this um, commonality there. We might also see the fact that there's a sort of religion or universal form of worship or deference that's um, practiced by the land and sea beast with the land beast supporting the sea beast and ultimately serving the dragon in that regard.
0: So if this is a reference to uh, the Jewish religious uh, establishment uh, of the time, how on earth does it effectively, or do they effectively,
1: become Satan worshippers? Or do they? One of the things I find interesting, and we discussed this in our exploration of the book of Daniel, is the way that there is this sort of horizontal drama playing out. But behind it, we see this vertical reality the fact that ultimately there's a battle taking place between heavenly forces. And there are people who are playing out things upon earth and seeing themselves merely participating in the horizontal drama, perhaps, unwittingly participating within this great cosmic conflict. And so the figure of Antiochus, Epiphanes, for instance, um, the one who ends up fighting against the forces of heaven, Something similar is probably happening here. There are people who have allied themselves with Rome, not realizing that Rome in this form has become a means of serving the dragon himself. And so we have a demonic dragon type force. And then we also have this false prophet of the land beast that's serving it and corrupting the faith of Israel and the true worship of the Lord in order to advance the service of the the dragon and the sea beast.
0: Okay, what's the significance of the 42 months? And how do the 42 months relate to the 1260 days in chapter 11?
1: We've already seen these periods of time in chapter 11 and chapter 12. So we've had the 1260 days in chapter 12. We've had the 42 months and three and a half months. Years or time, times, and a half time in chapter 11. And um, we suggested there that there are different connotations. They're the same length of time. So it's referring to the same thing, but with different connotations. Days correspond to the rule of the sun. And so there's something about the power of the Lord in preserving, for instance, the woman during that period of time that's corresponding with the 1260 days. Then we've got the period of the rule of the opposing powers as the 42 months, the time of the moon, the time of darkness. We might also think about the time, times, and half a time as connected with time of testing. It's a broken seven. It's half of seven. It's also connected with a time that we find back in the book of Daniel. Um, It's connected with things like the period of time during which there was a famine upon the land um, through the prophecy of the prophet Elijah, Elijah, other things like that.
0: It, could this also be the period of Christian persecution between the burning of Rome and Nero's death? I mean, those days, 64 to 68 would fit that period, wouldn't they?
1: Yes, it's also worth remembering that um, the prophecy back in Daniel chapter 9 refers to a broken week midway through a week. And so this is a broken week which yep. might call our minds back to that.
0: Yep. Now, uh, so that's the, uh, the sea beast. Now we meet another uh, beastie animal, a land beast. And how does the land beast relate to
1: the sea beast? And what are they up to? The land beast has features that, again, seem to be in some way parodic of Christ, two horns like a lamb. And so we've already seen the lamb um, earlier on within the prophecy, the lamb connected with Christ, And now we have a lamb who speaks like a dragon. There's a sort of perversion of the the lamb. And we might also think about the, he's connected with the previous beast, um, exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So the sea beast serves the land beast as a sort of false prophet. And later on, we'll have a false prophet that's mentioned. And then, ultimately, this is serving the, the rule of the dragon.
0: Mm. Now, how is this land beast linked with the Edomites and the Herods?
1: The Edomites or Herods are connected as a sort of great antagonist of Israel. They come into play at key points in Israel's history and the destruction of the temple. You might think of the connotations of the Edomites and the people of Esau. The great rival of the brother, and might think about the Amalekites as well in this context, and other um, Esau-related groups. Later on, of course, we have the Idumeans. The importance of the Idumeans in the early life of Christ, with Herod seeking to destroy Christ. And again, we have the Idumeans in, in the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. And so, in all of these contexts, they are great rivals. What does the land beast actually do? The land beast reinforces and serves the power of the sea beast, the gentile power within the land, serves as a sort of false prophet that spreads the religion, as it were, of the sea beast who corresponds ultimately with the dragon um, behind him still. And the sea beast is then someone who gives life to this image of the beast. And we've got the dragon We've got the image and then we've got the one that's given life by that. And so we've got um, a sort of Pentecost type thing, a breathing out of the spirit um, to form a new body of people. And then this description of a sort of false worship. No one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. And the way in which they're marked by the mark of the beast suggests a sort of false Marking by the law, you might think back to the way that the high priest was marked out in his forehead, or the way in which Israel was supposed to be marked out by the law upon um, their um, arm and then also upon their forehead. And this is a sort of parody of all of that.
0: So we've got uh, Rome with the uh, with the Edomites, the Herods, and the presumably the religious establishment of Israel at some point. This is what it's all referring to, is it?
1: Yeah. yeah. Now, how is the land beast to counterfeit Jesus? The land beast, as we've already noted, has features that are connected with Christ elsewhere. He's a lamb, and in certain regards, he has the two horns of a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. And we saw also the way in which the dragon or the um, sea beast is associated with the number 666. And then Christ is associated with the number 888. In Gematria, both those are um, numbers that are juxtaposed with each other. Christ being the 888, and then this sea beast being the other. Um, Might also think about the who is like the beast, and then who is like God with Michael, the meaning of Michael's name. And so there are a number of parallels, I think, that invite us to compare and contrast.
0: Okay, Alistair, this is the biggie. Everybody will be hanging out for this, the significance of the number 666. Now, there have been all sorts of ingenious theories. Can
1: you run us through some? Well, one of the things that we need to do first is to consider the different ways we might go about discerning a meaning. Um, There are many who have um, tried to divide it into its various factors and try and work out some meaning along those lines or seen it more in terms of 666, and then tried to see us as a threefold number of man, a man being connected with six as the number of the, um, the as the num- number connected with his day of creation. And so three times, but the number is 666, not 666. Um, then you might also think about it in terms of, it's two thirds of a thousand. So it's a thousand minus a third. We've had uh, numbers that have been removed. One third has been removed of them. Think about the n- number of the stars, a third taken down with the dragon. So this is the rem- rem- the remnant, perhaps. And um, We've had a number of thirds being removed at various points. It's the 36th triangular number. Maybe there's some significance there. Um, might also think about the way in which it's connected with a particular event in Israel's history. There was at the very climax of Solomon's reign, just as he's about to tip over into apostasy, we have this number 668, six pieces of gold that are taken in, connected with that shift into apostasy, where we have this list of the things that Solomon did that broke the rule of the king in Deuteronomy. And so that is another suggested meaning. Or we might think about the fact that, according to Gematria, Nero, his name might be connected with the number 666 by Gematria, the way in which each number, each letter is assigned a numerical value. And so if you have a name, you can also give the name a numerical value by adding up the value of the digits or the the different letters within it that have these numerical values associated with them. One of the supporting features of that some have seen is a different rendering of Nero's name would give 616 and we have 616 as um, the number in some texts and so that's another possibility. That's interesting, so really this
0: number if we take the Solomon connection and uh also well also the Nero connection but particularly the solomon connection this is this is concerned with buying and selling with liturgical
1: transactions presumably there's a connection here with temple worship is there well if we're thinking about the mark upon the forehead um it certainly would make us think back to the high priest um, this is something that, that marked Israel out as holy to the Lord and so what have perhaps here is a sort of false priesthood, a priesthood that's marked out by apostate worship. And so maybe that invites us to think about the, the priesthood, the temple and its worship. And this is a parody of that. Mm.
0: So this is all connected. This is the, the Herods who've got control of the temple system and the high priesthood. It's all been corrupted. And the they're, they're El- 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 Herod- Herods are allied with Rome. And yeah, okay. It all fits together, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, And behind it all is the dragon.
0: Is the dragon, that's right.
1: Yeah. Probably
0: the last question, Alistair, I think we're just about out of time. How does the work of the land beast refer back to
1: the ministry of Elijah? The land beast has, again, pay attention to the specific features of these figures and the ways that they are described. So for instance, think about the way that the, the land beast makes fire come down from heaven. That is something that is connected with Elijah in chapter one of second Kings. And so this is a false Elijah. People are waiting for Elijah. And now here comes a false Elijah because they've rejected the true Elijah, the one who was connected with fire from heaven. Think fire from heaven does come. Fire from heaven comes at Pentecost. Um, again, we might think about fire from heaven coming in judgment later on, but Fire has come. The true Elijah has come. And now he's been rejected. And so a false Elijah is sent. And those who have delighted in falsehood will follow him. Mm. Absolutely
0: fascinating. Dr. Alistair Roberts, as always, from the Theopolis Institute in the States. Alistair, thank you so much for your time. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge, who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Alistair, thank you very much. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.